Hello and welcome back ladies and gentlemen to the Historical Humans Podcast. On today's episode, we are going to be talking about the Tibetan Book of the Dead. But before we get censored by the CCP, let me introduce us. My name is Justin Woods and I'm joined today by my fellow co-hosts, Colm Coleman and Aaron Gilpin. And yeah, today we are talking about Tibet. Yes, so... Uh, we are discussing the Tibetan Book of the Dead. This is our second time discussing um, a Book of the Dead. Uh, I believe way, way back, very early in the uh, first season of Historical Humans, we covered the Egyptian Book of the Dead, which is uh, the one uh, people are the most familiar with. Uh, today we are covering Tibet's Book of the Dead, and uh, the actual title of this book, uh, given to it uh, by the people who wrote it, is uh, Bardo which translates as liberation in the intermediate state through hearing. Um, which actually does tell you a lot about the book as we, uh, as we go through with, uh, with its intended purpose and subject. Uh, it's, it, it, it's all in the title. You know, it's, it's the how-to guide of, uh, of, of enlightenment. We're already off to a great start when the English version of the name is already completely different than what the Tibetan version of the name is. Yeah, what, what, the, what, the, what, the, what it actually translates to is like, it's the Book of the Dead. No, it's liberation in the intermediate state through hearing. That's like really long, man. We <laughs> need to... It's not very catchy. It's never going to make New York Times yeah. bestseller. You know, yeah. the Egyptian yeah. Book of the Dead got really popular. Like, why can't we just mimic them? Yeah. Yeah. Wait, I think it's, I have a copy of that. It's American edit editorial companies all over. <laughs> oh, no. Are you uh, telling me there were things in this world created that were not meant to entertain an American audience? You're oh, telling me we're J. Jonah Jameson? Oh, you have no idea what's coming. Yeah, if, 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 I, if this bothers you, if this bothers you as much as it's going to clearly bother them for the next 20 minutes as I know them. I have um, actually, didn't. prior to this, I didn't really know about, I didn't really think there was something like this. I was just, because yeah. I have a very limited knowledge of Buddhism other than the fact that the Buddha reached enlightenment and that story was Sun Wukong. Yeah. But yes, uh, this is a Buddhist text. It is a, uh, you know, is a text of a active major religion, um, and uh, let's. Uh, that I think is a good time to uh, get into it. So the book is written from a Buddhist perspective, as it is, you know, you know, you would expect of a you know religious text for Buddhism. Wait, you mean a Buddhist wrote um, a Buddhist text? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and it is uh, it is a work of medieval Tibetan prose. Uh, so it is. Uh, it's it's not poetry um a lot of times people like to associate poetry or at least uh poetics with uh, a lot of these uh works and books the egyptian book of the dead gets that a whole bunch because it's a collection of very short prayers uh and some not so short prayers so people kind of like to make it like it's some sort of you know emily dickinson poem and it's not <laughs> Um, uh, especially uh, here with the Tibetan Book of the Dead. And uh, it is a commentary on death and dying. The uh, emphasis of the book is understanding the interconnectedness of all things, and uh, it treats life as a constant cycle of change and impermanence, and it's sort of there to, help to keep 
help you from uh, clinging to what is an impermanent life uh, with uh, the whole cycle of death going on. Yeah, because there's a reincarnation. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. We get we'll get into that in a minute. But like the cycle of reincarnation and stuff. It's the idea is you know, people really don't like dying, and this book is supposed to help you get over that. I, I don't uh, feel like people are afraid of dying. I mean, Buddhism, you just start back over if you mess up, right? Kinda, not really. Yeah. yeah. Um. So, you know, it's the cycle. You know, it's the cycle of dying. We'll, we'll get we'll get into a whole lot of Buddhism at the end of this, uh, with, you know, with the book. There is there is a lot of, you know, a lot of things that make it easier to understand what is going on, uh, with the book with uh, a Buddhist context. However, we decide to save that for the end. But yeah, it's uh, it's um, yeah, it, it's a uh, you know, I lost where I was. God damn it. Uh, <laughs> Yeah. It's but, basically yeah, it's, a guide for people to yeah. read and to understand what the next step in the process is because that I think that's one of the things that scare people at a very innate level is, you know, what happens when I die? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I spent a whole summer once thinking about that. It yeah. was awful. <laughs> God, I don't miss 2018. Yeah. And <laughs> I'm, I'm going to ignore the existential cry for help from my co-hosts and... <laughs> So, uh, so the I, I, of... I go to therapy for a reason. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, and we're all so glad for it. Um, so the emphasis. Of Maybe I should have read this book. The, the <laughs> emphasis. The emphasis. Hi, I'm back. <laughs> the emphasis of this book is on a Buddhist concept called bardos, which is these liminal stages between death and rebirth. Um, there are, I believe. Uh, three uh, Bardos's three transitions uh, between uh, dying and living again, uh, which this book is is meant to help guide people through. And uh, I'm gonna skip down the notes a little bit just because this makes more sense to read here. Uh, so this book it's uh, meant to be read aloud. It's you know liberation through hearing. Oh yeah, okay. Um, so it's meant to be read read aloud uh, by a Buddhist preach. It's you know it's like a sermon, um, but here's the thing, Aaron, you, Justin, me, all of us, we are not the intended audience of this book. Thank God. Um, this book is meant to be read aloud to the dead, oh, which wait. meant that the which means that it is probably the only book in history that was published for the deceased. So it's like a, uh, was it a requiem? Eulogy. Eulogy, that's it. Um, yeah. Uh, not really. So what it is, is it is recited to ease the passing of the deceased through death and reverse, uh, rebirth. And it's meant to insist the consciousness into either breaking the cycle of death and rebirth or into attaining a favorable rebirth. Uh, as with uh, Tibetan Buddhism in particular, there is a period of time after you are dead during which you can still experience the world through your senses uh, in your body. So oh. if someone were to read a book to you uh, over your corpse, you would still be aware of that book being read. And, you know, this is, you know, the instructional guide of, you know, 
all right, here's here he, here's how how to uh, you know how to get through everything <laughs> that you're dealing with right now. Oh no, it's an instructional pamphlet. So you're dead. What's yeah. next? Yeah. <laughs> uh, at least it's better than how yeah. they show up in the good place where you're sitting in a waiting room. And, That's and, basically... an incredibly an incredibly irreverent. Um, uh, analogy would be the uh, ghost instruction manual from Beetlejuice. Oh, oh my god! Yeah, I would and, love it. Yeah, there you go. Aaron, Aaron's on board with the book again. <laughs> I've been on board mostly for a lot of for different reasons, though. Yeah, yeah, and. Uh... And, uh, you know, these being, you know, Buddhist physics texts, they're often very, very beautifully illustrated, uh, especially the Tibetan ones. Um, they did a thing called block illustrations, um, which is basically where you have entire, like, pressed pages of just art. In the oh. Middle. Um, it is, uh, they're, they're very, they're, they're, they're very beautiful. They put a lot of money into, into the production of these things. And uh, speaking of the production, we're going to get to, uh, I think, our favorite part of this section, which is, uh, you know, who wrote this book and how? <laughs> uh, so this is going to be the mis most historical part of, the, uh, of today's episode, which is uh, the book. So the book is traditionally attributed to a man called Had Masambhava. He is a 7th century Indian tantric Buddhist guru who is credited with introducing Buddhism to Tibet. Now, the reason we say traditionally attributed is because historians and practitioners of Buddhism disagree on when the book was first uh, put out. Uh, practitioners uh, believe that Padmasambhava uh, was... Uh, you know, was the guru who, when he brought Buddhism into Tibet, uh, first inscribed the first copies of this book. However, historians date the book to the 14th century, about 700 years after uh, Padmasambhava, um, because that is the first time in which a physical copy of the book can be traced. Um, so there, it could be the possibility that's the first time it was written down and the book yeah. was more, I mean, like possibility wise, it could have been brought like the yeah. tradition, I guess the religion could have been brought and then it was written down later. Yeah. So yeah. And that, Cause I mean, it kind of, in context, it's kind of the same. Yeah. 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 And that's kind of what appears to have happened is there's an ambiguous oral tradition leading up to this because the first book, um, was found by a man named Karma Lingpa. Uh, Lingpa claimed to be a reincarnation of one of Padmasambhava's students who uh, was there to light the way and bring Padmasambhava's uh, words back into Tibet uh, as they were once again needed. How, how do they know? How do they know they're re they're the reincarnation of someone else? I have no idea. You would have to get like an actual Buddhist Lama to uh, explain that. Well, I, <laughs> I do what... follow. The... Oh. I know the Dalai Lama specifically. 
they lay out a number of relics associated with them from previous lives and that's the way in which they vet it is the child has to look at these specific items out of thousands of items yeah. oh yeah okay yeah. I guess that would be something similar. I don't necessarily know if that would be the case for Karma Lingpa or, you know, with someone who isn't, you know, the head of the uh, spiritual religion. I will say, though, um, I know there is some doubt on the dates purely based on it being oral tradition. But in a lot of cases, oral tradition was passed down prior to it being written down. So there could be a case where this was an oral tradition prior to it becoming an actual physical book and yeah. this is just the first record of the physical version of it that we found yeah, and, and that is kind of what it you know that's that kind of what it is this is the first record of the physical book and even this book is kind of debated on its existence oh really no uh, yeah so the one from the 14th um, century uh yeah the one from the 14th century oh wow uh, because uh uh uh, because uh, the Book of the Dead was transmitted orally into the 15th century, and the first like printings of the book that are like known printings uh, that I could find, and that a lot of the sources uh, referenced as the first known printings are from the 18th century. Oh, and I'm assuming survivorship bias at this point. Yeah, that's but, a possibility. You know. But at the same time, it's like, it's a mess trying to figure out when this book was written, who wrote it. Um, you know, it's it's one of those, it's one of those, you know, Homer's Odyssey kind of questions. Why is of it that like, every major... When did this originate? <laughs> Why is it that every major religious text has some sort of questionable origin? Well, not every major religious sex has some sort of questionable reason. Just this one is obfuscated to all hell. Some of them were just straight up written down by a guy, and we know that that's the guy who wrote him down because he wrote it day one. He wrote. He wrote on there saying, "Today I have written this. Today this well, happened." Well, it, it 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 is it is helpful when you have a physical copy, and the guy who click you know who is believed to have wrote it in the same place at the same time. That tends to help a lot. <laughs> you know, the historical figure and the text are in the same room together, which, unfortunately, Padmas and Bava never is, and that's actually a very intentional decision on his part, uh, as we'll get to later. Um, but one of the interesting things I would like to go over before we uh, get back into the life of this, uh, of this uh, guru is... Um, so oral traditions are traditionally thought of as being like master to apprentice type things. You know, I'm teaching you, so I tell you all the stories, and then you teach the next guy and tell him all the stories. Yeah. It's not how it worked uh, for uh, Bardo Thadol. Um, it was actually a fluid transmission, uh, wherein students would tell each other parts of the Book of the Dead. And you would have this sort of crossover between different uh, temples, sects, and schools throughout Tibet, as the you know various Buddhist monks came into contact with each other. They would end up trading it uh, with one another, creating was effectively a 
fairly coherent copy of the book as no one temple is isolated enough to diverge from uh, a central sort of agreed upon core. Alrighty, and we are back. The uh, recording here kind of messed up on us, but we were talking about how the book itself was very, very fluid and cohesive because all of the different groups within this, all the different temples, would come together to tell the same stories. Correct? Yeah, yeah. There was, yeah, there was no barrier between students uh, telling, you know, the Bardo Fadol to other students uh, as they went on their pilgrimages throughout Tibet which sort of let the book kind of stay integrated across Tibet. Um, so... Not more so than it would have if it was, you know, the master's eyes on So why did Padma Sambhava? Is that yeah, how you pronounce it, right? Yeah, Padma Sambhava. That is okay. about as close as uh, my English-speaking tongue can ever get. So why why did he bring it to Tibet? Like why why leave his home and say you know what I'm gonna go to this region and I'm gonna teach them Buddhism? I mean, you ever see Tibet? They just look like a Buddhist area. I mean, oh, you got the yes, wonderful yes. temples up yeah, in the mountains yeah, and everything. Yeah, yeah, just, I know I told you to stop making fun of religion earlier. I'm gonna have to rescind that for this part right here. Oh no, the the viewers uh, at home won't know that section. That's the lost yeah. lore. Yeah, oh. we, had a, we, had brief, we had a brief discussion about <laughs> about religious cohesion <laughs> and, and stuff off uh, at the lost part of the camera. But like, um, you're gonna we're we're gonna rescind that uh, standing order for the time being because Padmasambhava brought Buddhism to Tibet at the invitation of the Tibetan Emperor uh, Trisong Detsen, uh, who ruled from about 755 to 797 uh, CE. Um, his death is entirely unknown. We have yeah, no the... idea when he died. He, he didn't. Just, he just, just transcended. Yeah, that's actually pretty common in a lot of in a lot of places. Like I remember, like Romulus just ascended into heaven. Jesus did. did. Romulus didn't ascend into heaven. He was murdered brutally in the street, and that's the story everyone told, so they <laughs> wouldn't get in trouble. <laughs> Romulus? I thought he ascended into heaven. He, he descends into heaven after being stabbed. Oh. Whoops. <laughs> it's horrifying. So it's like, you know. But this, but this guy god, just goes no, poof. We can't have killed a god. <laughs> this guy just goes poof, though, right? Like, he's gone? Yeah. Well, like, somebody just, just wakes up one day and he's like, hey, where is he? I don't yeah. think people the, just go poof, though, Aaron. <laughs> the, the written records of 8th century Tibet are somewhat lacking, shall we say. And the exact death of a king, uh, or I should say emperor here, is not uh, one of the things that has made it down to us. But we can kind of guess about when he died. I didn't even know there was an empire in Tibet. That, that's, now that's news to me. I want to know more. That's just your Western centricism, Aaron. I'm sorry my high school history class didn't exactly teach me anything. Yes. Um, wonderful. The world according to world history. You're up in, in the United States of America. With, with a, brief, Central a, a brief stop off in Central America and just a little touchdown in Africa. Just oh, a don't little... forget Asia. Uh, don't forget no. Japan, specifically. Only, yeah. only after the 17th century, though, when the Europeans got in contact with them. Yeah. Yes. Anyway, Matthew the Perry. Reason, <laughs> the reason Emperor Trasong Detson brings Padmasambhava to Tibet is because to, 
is because he wants Tibet to be purged of dark spirits that are plaguing the lands. And wait, wait, what? Yeah, there are according to according to the traditions and history of Tibet, Padmasambhava Brava was bought to Tibet to free the land from dark spirits, and Padmasambhava oh. did. He goes into the land and subdues these dark spirits and makes them guardians of the cosmic law of Dharma, which is the Buddhist religious law. Oh, see, I thought he just kind of wandered in. I thought, like, I, I just, like, he, read he the would. notes wrong. He, like, I thought he wandered in and said, sir, there are dark spirits here and I shall banish them. No, but he, no, he, he was actually invited. Okay. He's invited by the emperor. But, you know subdued the dark spirits of the land and made them good and holy people how do we know he wasn't a vampire especially if he was specifically invited in yeah. it's like saint patrick purging all the snakes from ireland <laughs> it's not a literal snake oh, oh. <laughs> they're getting rid they're getting rid of all the heathens <laughs> they're just draining the swamp what do you mean Oh, no. <laughs> oh, that's not the turn I was expecting. <laughs> yeah. Isn't that lovely? So he, he... Lovely boys and girls. We're subduing so... the dark spirits, everybody. Well. <laughs> uh, so, he, so he just dispels them and... Um... Yeah, he subdues them. What, what happens next? Is specific, like... the, the specific word I found in every source about this was subdue. So, you know, some sort of conquest is going on right now. So, like, what happens? Is this around the time when that emperor goes poof? No, this is during his reign. Uh, Pad Masum uh, Baba has a uh, long and well-received history into that. Um, because as he's going around doing this, or maybe a little while after, um, Padmasambhava enlists the help of one Yeshi uh, Soigat, uh, who assists him in writing the Book of the Dead. Now, uh, Yeshi here uh, was the wife or consort of the Emperor. So, very important woman. Uh, she's believed so that's to be why he disappeared. Yeah, she she is believed to be among the first students of Padmasambhava, and she is known as the mother of Tibetan Buddhism. She is a very important figure, and this is where Tibetan Buddhism really kind of starts to get some props. Uh, uh, is uh, is through her a little bit. So Buddhism was more of a was installed more of in a top down kind of fashion rather than a bottom up. The emperor called a guru in to convert the population. Yes, it's a top-down integration. <laughs> you, know, you know, it's it's you know it's sort of you know sort of like you know the Spanish calling in all those monks <laughs> to the new world. Oh no! Except Ooh. this time we only needed one. The Tibetan Inquisition. Oh no! Nobody expects the Tibetan Inquisition. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
It's just a bunch of people in or in orange robe robes telling you to be at peace. Oh no! <laughs> oh boy. Uh, anyway, um, and it is believed that uh, Yeshi here was an early devotee of the goddess Tara, which is a principal deity of esoteric Buddhism, which is the overarching branch of Buddhism that uh, Padmasam uh, Brava belonged to. Uh, you know, Tantric Buddhism is a part of esoteric Buddhism. You know, it's you know, bigger and bigger rings, you know. Uh, I guess the easiest way to explain it to our, um, uh, you know, to the generally Western audience that we have is how, like, both Lutheranism and Calvinism are Protestant. <laughs> Not every Protestant's a Calvinist, but every Calvinist is a Protestant. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's kind of, yeah, that kind of thing. And uh, the part of the uh, part of this is uh, why uh, Tibet Muslim gets some props for having uh, Yeshi around is this worship of Tara because Tara, uh, her main focus is equality of the sexes and uh, bringing women uh, to seek enlightenment. Alright, we are back yet again. More technical yeah. difficulties in humans, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah. Uh, here we are with technical difficulties in history. Uh, you won't notice it, but we sure as, as all hell do. <laughs> uh, this is the cursed uh, episode. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah, it's, uh, you know, something doesn't want us talking about this, and uh, I think it might be the subject we'll be talking about right after we finish with uh, Yesi uh, to Swigel. So, oh, um, being, you know, one of the two key figures of Tibetan Buddhism, you know, there's that equality, uh, that kind of gets baked in just a little bit into, uh, into the overall structure of Tibetan Buddhism. And, uh, unfortunately, uh, rather fortunately, I should say, uh, Yeshi, uh, is canonically attained enlightenment, which means she will no longer be returning to Earth to spread wisdom or, uh, live among us. Uh, she has achieved liberation, uh, which is the goal of the Bardo Fadol, the book she helped write. I wonder what liberation's like. I don't know. It seems nice. Hmm. Uh, Not having and, to worry. Uh, free of your worldly yeah. put livelihood. Yes. And uh, one last key thing that she did uh, alongside uh, Pad Masambava is uh, she hid copies of the Book of the Dead to be discovered uh um by worthy individuals uh when they uh were most needed uh, are you kidding is, me which is the entire premise of karma linkpa uh and his proclamation of being a former student of padam uh padmasambhava reincarnated and uh you know finding one of these books you know hidden away in a mountainside and spreading it with uh, the world oh my god hmm. i love it all, this it all ties together canonically in a nice neat little bow that none of his none of history can verify <laughs> i love it i love this so much are you gonna be the next person to find the next book to ben book of the dead oh. find out I, I, feel like you, I feel like to you this is just takeshi's castle generations <laughs> edition <laughs> I like this. This is great. I like. She hid all those books. And it's like they're just waiting to be found. Wrote, like the yeah, I wrote like the, the one piece. To, 
to, you know, liberation of the human soul. And then I hid it from the world so no one could have it for hundreds of years. I think you guys aren't looking at this at the right way. Like, (laughs) this is our quest. This is the destiny. We must go to collect them all. This is this is our One Piece? Not, this is achievement hunting gone extreme. They're, 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 they're not Pokemon. This is not the Holy Grail. Well, it's uh, the Book of the Dead. You will not get to kill a rabbit. No, oh, not with the Holy Hand Grenade. Yeah. The oh. Holy Hand Grenade of Antioch. Tibetan Monty Python. Tibetan Monty Python is so much We better. already have the Tibetan Inquisition. We're halfway there. Oh, but, we're, we might as well. But speaking of needless westernization, I would like to draw attention um, to a man uh, of the 20th century, uh, a man by the name of Walter Evans Wentz. A white man? No! Who is responsible for the first translation of Bardo Fadol into English in 1927. And I use the term responsible because, well, he is the guy who ultimately made it happen. He is not, however, really the translator. Uh, anytime you but, say anthropologist in 1920-anything, yeah. <laughs> you gotta be a little suspicious. Here's, yeah, so here's how the story goes. Wentz is an anthropologist specializing in spiritualism and religion... Uh, out in sort of the area of India, Tibet, uh, you know, that kind of just general, you know, Nepal-esque, you know, mountainside region. He is friends with a, um, shall we say, local British governor by the name of Major W.L. Campbell, who... While touring uh, Tibet, as one does, brought back a number of beautiful copies of the Book of the Dead, which he could not read. So he presented to him to his, you know, anthropologist friend to, you know, translate and understand uh, whatever the hell this is. Those people were valuing it a whole lot, and it cost me money. God, it's always the British! Ah, the good old age of exploration, too, when a well-to-do academic could just happen upon an important document and just pay for it. Oh, no, 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 not an academic. Yeah, Campbell was a British. A British military officer could happen upon an important religious text, take it, and then give it to his academic friend. That's what I mean, like, to be able to just go, yeah, I acquired this for money, now translate it. This is my glory. I, I always mention Pitt Rivers, who was another British uh, military officer that just traveled the world and collected things. He just collected stuff he thought was interesting and organized it in curio cabinets. I think they're neat. <laughs> yeah, basically. <laughs> this is important. I had to kill the person who had it, but... Yeah. Oh, God. British curiosity cabinets. <laughs> Uh, All right. So continuing, this guy translated the book, right? Yes. Yes. And his and and it is him. Uh, he did not translate the book. Uh, he is the man responsible for having the book translated. Um, Wentz had a relatively poor understanding of 
the Tibetan language. But he would not let that stop him. <laughs> the um, British confidence, too. I love it. Yeah. Um, and uh, when he gets this book translated, uh, uh, he takes some creative uh, liberties. Oh, no. Namely, the title. Uh, which he decides to title the Tibetan Book of the Dead. Because I want to say 60 years prior... Yeah, and uh, I want to say 1867, the Egyptian Book of the Dead had been translated. Wentz had read it, and he noticed similarities that he decided were enough to uh, basically claim uh, cult, you know, uh, cultural migration from Egypt to Tibet. I and made a joke about ready. that earlier. I made a joke. So he read it, went, mm, yeah, that's a catchy title. Yoink. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Uh, that similarity was the idea that uh, was the idea of Bardo, was the concept that there are, shall we say, stages through which the soul passes after death. The Egyptians had this concept. The Buddhists in Tibet have this concept. You know what didn't have this concept? The British Christians. Because you die and you instantaneously, like, Minecraft spawn into, like, the <laughs> nether. Oh, no, Where's you that? spawn into a lava pit? Ooh, 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 ooh. Imagine if that's actually what happened instead of, like, heaven's actually just a Minecraft server on peaceful or creative. Yeah. Just as long as I'm not surrounded by 12-year-olds, I'll be all right. <laughs> that's hell. That's oh, hell. yeah. But, like, My like, house got greased again! <laughs> Hell, uh, blasphemy aside, yeah, but yeah, ba basic, basically, you know, but basically, um, you know, his religion just had the idea that you die, you appear in the uh, next life, whatever that is for you—heaven, hell, purgatory, all that. The Tibetans and the Egyptians both had this idea that there is a journey for the soul. Um that the soul undertakes between dying and uh, reaching the next phase of existence. And that was enough to say they're basically the same and slap a knockoff title on it. Sounds about right. Uh, I'm actually more... I don't know if I should be impressed or, like, appalled by the fact that this man actually read the entire Book of the Dead because that thing is... Like, the Egyptian one, that thing is long... Like, that's yeah. not something you read for fun. Yeah, yeah the, the Egyptian one is like 600 pages. Well, he was an anthropologist. Yeah. I don't fun. care. But Listen. we also talked about his understanding of the language, correct? Yeah, he has a poor understanding of the language, um, which is ironic since Wentz's translation becomes the standard English translation of the Tibetan Book of the Dead, of Bardo. Uh, fortunately, it's not as bad as you think. Because Wentz had the brilliant idea to enlist a ghostwriter uh, by the name oh. of Lama Kazi Dawa Samdu. Oh, so he actually had somebody who could speak the language do this. Yeah. Oh, so uh, like any yeah. good academic, he had some unpaid intern helping him out. Well, I guess it's in this no, case no, he was a, paid. No, but it's 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 a llama. It's a uh, it's a you know spiritual guide uh, in Buddhism. And Samdub was a teacher at a local school in Sikkim, which was where uh, Major Campbell was stationed, which is where Wentz was working out of. And um, 
yeah, Wentz's translation is almost is probably more Sandup's work than Wentz's, as Sandup dies in 1926, and Wentz just fills in whatever parts aren't done by Sandup and publishes it the next year. Wow. <laughs> God damn. That's that's heartless. And the so we talked about this off screen there's a new indiana jones movie and one of the scenes there's no spoilers here but one of the scenes indy immediately deciphers and decrypts an encrypted tablet and like translates it instantly and it drives me nuts because translation processes are not quick by any sorts of by any stretch of the imagination and like they're difficult. We understand some of the languages, uh, but trying to figure out what context, what form, what word, or what version of the word they're trying to say is... Like, it's... it's Like, none of it makes sense until you have the whole text put together, and sometimes you might not want to use a certain English word when you have the full context. You might... Like, a di- other words might be appropriate to get to get the right meaning but you you don't know that right away yeah yeah you you can see there's a there's a number of places you can go on the internet and see things where uh like million billion dollar companies have mistranslated stuff from one language to another uh my personal favorite is uh the taste like grandma's translation losing the possessive and becoming tastes like grandma (laughs) <laughs> for a lot of food products. See, God, I, I can't, I can't tell you how many, like, how many versions of like the Aeneid are there. Tell me how many through the years. My personal favorite is the British Museum's approach to translation, oh, where God. they just yoink the service, they just yoink the work of someone else, don't attribute them, and then when they're called out for it, then they go, oh, and just remove it. Yeah. <laughs> Well, to be fair, to be fair to the British Museum, the person who did the translation was uh, living in Canada, which means they are a subject of the British Empire and should be grateful to have been noticed by the motherland. <sighs> Get the... <laughs> that was the single most colonial take this whole podcast, and there's been yeah, a lot. <laughs> yes, it is. And that was pure irony for those of you who don't understand irony. <laughs> oh, <laughs> my God. Oh. Anyway, the thing is, um, it's true. It's kind of true. <laughs> Anyway, for the British, had, yeah, yeah. Sandup had the advantage of being, you know, a native speaker, um, and he was known uh, uh, as an. Ex- he was actually a well-renowned uh, translator uh, for Tibetan to English. Uh, he oh. very fa- yeah he he famously helped a travel writer named Alexandra David Neal. Um, a lot of uh, hyphenated names in this show today. <laughs> Uh, basically, write her travel guides uh, for the, the like most of Central Asia. Um, I think there were travel guides for that. Oh, it's the, it's the early twentieth century. Um, oh, the right. whole idea of visit a country with this book of things to look at is very much still in vogue. All right, we have Hercule. Perot running around solving mysteries on Nile steamboats still. Oh my god. Yeah. 
yeah so that whole <sighs> idea of travel writing it's still very much uh it's still very much a thing where they where they're doing this uh old school travel writing uh by the way if you read travel guides today and you look at the old school ones don't look at the old school ones well now i have to no. because i need to know how awful they were they were accurate about what was there it's just you understand a lot of the values of the society based on how they're describing these things oh i it just it hurts because uh, i we should seen... read one for fun no aaron yeah, no. no justin's for i'm not doing it. uh just, oh, just yeah we're good i think we're still rolling okay but yeah, that that would be awful just to go through and read them of like old timey ways in which the British like to describe some of the unique and very foreign <laughs> locations that they got to visit. Yeah. Now, fun fact. How is this more I'll... sad than talking about dying? Yeah. Because uh, it's the fact. British. <laughs> fun fact. Um, fun fact. Alexandra David Neal was not British. Oh. He was French and Belgian. Ah, that's like diet British. Oh, the, the British would strongly disagree with you. I know. I just said that to upset the French. Yeah. yeah. They're rioting right now. Good for them. Let them riot. It's fine. They're yeah. doing good things. I thought. I thought that's not the quote. Let them eat cake. No, I want them to riot. They're having fun. Oh, well, no, I wouldn't say having fun. They're. They're rioting for good reasons listen listen in france a riot is like a block party it happens every day oh my god <laughs> how many yeah riots and churches how many, burning. how many nations are we going to attack in this episode about a tibetan book all of them were like the british empire <laughs> all right all right all right we're gonna all right, bring that again so Wentz, you know he's got his hand you know he's not just letting um uh you know, Sam Dup do all the work. Wentz has got his hand on the translation, and he makes sure that it has his own unique bend to it, his own unique flavor. I'm scared. And that is what is known as theosophical, um, which is um, basically philosophizing on religion. Hmm. Uh, still scared. Um... This uh, interpretation was supported by his proofreader, Carl Jung. And I have uh, been vindicated. I've been vindicated for my fear. Uh, hmm. The founding father of psychology and best friend and number one firm believer of Sigmund Freud. Uh, they were roommates. Yeah. Let me God. put it to you this way. Sigmund Freud and Carl Jung agreed on everything. Until Carl Jung uh, took Sigmund Freud's theories in Freud's belief one step too far and became too extreme for Freud. How the fuck do you go too far with that? Drugs. I didn't think there was a... Uh, well, there it is. Drug therapy. Yeah, they did a lot of that. A I knew Freud did, but... Car Carl Jung had a whole thing with hallucinogenics. Oh, you gotta expand your mind, man. Yeah. He was like hippie in the 1920s. Yeah, yeah, yeah. B b basically, Carl Jung was the sort of psychologist to prescribe LSD for anxiety. 
It opens your mind, man. So you're telling me in the 1920s, LSD did not exist, but yes, it isn't. He was used. So you're telling me, so real quick, you're telling me in the 1920s in Vienna, while Sigmund Freud was doing coke, this man was doing hallucinogenics in the same room. Probably yes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Carl Jung had a thing about mushrooms. God, they really just got away with anything in the 1920s. Not to mention really. Vienna. Look at all the prominent figures that have lived in Vienna over the years. Yes. Um, God, I need a time machine. Oh, what? <laughs> okay. <laughs> anyway, so... Yeah, but yeah, uh, yeah, so there's this... There's this, uh, shall we say... Um, very westernized religious bend to the uh, English translation of it, of uh, of the Bardo Thadol, and because of this, uh, the book has actually become a popular guide for self transformation among the living. Oh God it's, damn it! Yeah, it's a self help book. Yep, yeah, yep. Yeah, people looking to free themselves from self-destructive behaviors to end the cycle to achieve liberation in life all I flock to this book which as a historian it is very important to point out is not the intended purpose of this book this book is meant to be read to a corpse so that the soul of the deceased can find their way to nirvana i.e. you know liberation I thought nirvana uh, was in Seattle I hate it here. Oh, it's going to get worse. Of course it does. Yeah. Yeah. And the reason for all of these, um, all these changes was because Wentz was a spiritualist. God! He was Damn a it. man. He chose to go to the, uh, to Central Asia to study their religion the same way that, like, people go there today as, like, a tourist pseudo rebirth thing. So what you mean is he was like the Beatles. He's a fucking poser. He's a grifter. Listen, listen, just imagine, just imagine for a second if people treated Western religions like they treat Eastern ones. Let's all go to Utah to get baptized and have a spiritual awakening, everybody. Please don't go to Utah. And then leave and never come back or mention it again, except at parties when you want to be pretentious. Actually, you know what? Do that to Utah. Do that to Utah. They they have it coming. You know, I, I just like how they talk about Joseph Smith. That's all. I'm, listen, just please commodify their religion the same way this man co- co- uh, commodified the Tibetan one. Yeah. Oh. Please do it. It's good revenge. Yeah. Oh, you want to know the best part of it all, Aaron? It has since been translated from the English. Into 21 other languages. God, you uh, shitting me. You know, they, they translate didn't... it from the English version. Oh, most, of the, most, most versions in most versions that aren't in an eight in a Central Asian language are translated from the English translation. God damn it! English is already three languages in a top hat, pretending to be its own. Just That's that what top... made it so easy. The French and the Germans already had a head start. <laughs> Uh, why? Why? <laughs> I don't know if anyone at home has ever played the telephone game where you just whisper things into someone else's ear, and you basically go down a line of like fifteen people, and the phrase changes and it morphs. That's what happens with these translations because one translation to another 
things change. And then from another language to a different one, it just further gets lost in translation. Yeah. Makes yeah, you, you think about hear... how accurate your Bible is, don't you? Listen, listen. You want, you want to hear something really horrifying? Oh, so I thank you. Into the, I, I looked into trying to find copies of this book um, to potentially read from for our Historical Humans Read section. Um, the preface and intro and commentary and all that stuff for the book is 181 pages long in the shortest format I could find. Oh! Wow. Um, yeah, and the commentaries that people have put in this book ranged to anything from scholastic debates among anthropologists to um, interpretations from Buddhist guides. Everyone wants a piece of this pie. And it has created a preamble longer than the actual book. Oh my god. So much discourse. There probably shouldn't have to be, because if this man just left everything alone. It's a 300 and some page book, and almost 200 pages of it is just people talking about what you need to know to understand this translation. God damn you, Wentz. Yep. But, uh... Yeah, that is... I that feel... Is yeah. Oh, defeated. Yeah. Alright. Yeah, yeah. you feel defeated right now. And so, to help... To help ease your soul... Mm. Let's I think I actually some, need that. Uh, let's, uh, uh, let's talk about some of, uh... The principles in Bardo Thadol. Some of the Buddhist concepts it's related to. You know... All the things that Wentz most definitely did not butcher. At all. Not whatsoever. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, that is, once again, almost entirely thanks to Kazidawa Sambu. Because that man basically saved this thing. <laughs> but, yeah, so... Buddhist reincarnation um, uh, works uh, relatively... Uh, it's actually a pretty complex mechanism when you think about it. So the simple version is your soul or your consciousness is reincarnated into a new form after you die. If you achieve enlightenment, you are freed from the cycle of death in reverse and are essentially become one with, you know, Buddha, with the universe, with the spiritual energy that permeates all things. You are no longer forced to live and die over and over and over and over again. Sounds pretty nice. Now, when you die, you are drawn by your karma to your new form. Now, karma, interestingly enough, is the consequences of your actions. And it says nothing about the intent. What? Good intentions. From what, uh, from what you know, just base level stuff we could, uh, I could gather for this. Good intentions don't matter. The road to hell is paved with them. It's the consequences of your actions that matter. Not the consequences of my own actions. Because yeah, the consequence, 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 consequences of my action coming for me right now. Basically. Yeah. yeah. And uh, you can be reincarnated. Uh, depending on your karma, as one of six things. 
Uh, number one is uh, the suffering spirit, where you endure horrible torture for a lifetime. What? Yeah. Number two is the wandering ghost, where you are an entity driven by an insatiable craving. Craving for revenge. Like, I will like haunt just, you. Like any craving? Like, could there be a ghost craving cake constantly? Have you seen the Ghostbusters? Slimer. Yeah. Let's not pretend let's not pretend gluttony's not on the list. Uh, you can be reincarnated as the animal ruled by pure instinct. Revenge. Yeah. You Why? can be reincarnated as the demigod, a creature lustful for power. And revenge. You can be reincarnated as a human. Which is the balance of intellect and reason, which is why Buddhism kind of thinks that humanity is the moment to make the jump to break the cycle. Because if you draw oh. a human out of this little out of this little lot drawing contest, you got your best chance. Because <laughs> hmm. the next form, the sixth and final form, is the god, which is a creature that lives for so long it has become deluded into believing it is immortal. And, you know, has basically gone high on its own ego. Wow. How do you... Wait, so, like... So, like, you're only a spirit for, like, roughly a lifetime, so you're not actually dying, right? I I think about that. Uh, Buddhism, like, a lot of these concepts are like, you know, what do you mean suffering spirit? What do you mean, you know, wandering? Buddhism is interacting with a lot of other religions. Um throughout Central Asia, throughout, you know, India and Pakistan, throughout China and Japan. So it has to deal with, like, in um, Journey to the West, it has to deal with, like, the court of the Jade Emperor and explain all of these things that people, uh, you know, have proof of and believe in. And, you know, it has to explain, uh, you know, basically all these other religions that's running into. Because Buddhism is, you know the encompassing of all spirits. And if everyone is running around saying, look at these things, they are gods. Well, you've got to explain that somehow. Yeah, that's just Dave. He got a little too high on his ego yeah, while being a yeah. god. Yeah. And <laughs> gods are just things that live so long, they forget they can die. <laughs> then Sung Wukong reminds them. <laughs> uh, Sung Wukong. It won't be too uh, long till Kratos comes. Yes, uh, precisely. Zeus, face me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is beautiful. Um, and uh, Tibetan Buddhism naturally has its own take on this system. Uh, Tibetan Buddhism is known as uh, Vajrayana or Tantric Buddhism. It emerged in Central Asia, and what is unique to Tantric Buddhism is the concept of bardos. The idea of a liminal transitional period from uh, from death to rebirth. The cycle is not instantaneous, according to the tantric Buddhists. Wait, yeah. You said it came out of Central Asia. Yeah. It, uh, I don't know if I remember if I remember if I'm remembering this correctly. But I think in Zoroastrianism, there is also a sort of period between the moment of, like, before you ascend into the afterlife, if 
there yeah. if there is one for them i can't quite remember but i do remember there is like yeah, a specific so, moment like yeah. that that's interesting yeah yeah so yeah with the zoroastrianism that's actually just outside of central asia that would be in uh you know uh iraq and iran which i think is just like like the bordering state okay the board like the bordering political entity has zoroastrianism and you know, Buddhism tends to take a lot of notes on what is going on in all the religions it brushes up against. <laughs> Buddhism, li Buddhism likes to not so much incorporate their beliefs, but incorporate an understanding of what these people are, are doing. Okay. It's a very, it's a very understanding religion, uh, even though, even as it condemns your gods as just deluded, as just people with delusions of grandeur. <laughs> <laughs> it, at time, it at least takes the time to understand what's going on before it condemns you. <laughs> yeah. Um, yes, and uh, this Bardos period lasts about forty-nine. Lasts exactly forty-nine days, and I have no idea why it's forty-nine days. <laughs> Could not find that. Um, it's not forty-nine days between the next the moon. Yeah. Yeah, but moon. 49 days from the moment you kick the bucket to the moment you wake up in a new body. <laughs> that's got that's got to be weird. Yeah, it is. And uh, there are actually three Bardos, uh, three transition periods between um, dying and uh, rebirth. Uh, the first is the moment of death. The second, or sorry, the third is uh, um, wait is you know the transition into your new body, and it's the second one where things start going wrong and uh, the Bardo Thedol is meant to intervene. Uh, because in the second phase, which is the encountering of mystical knowledge and apparitions, the doors of the universe are flung open and you see all of reality for what it is. Oof, that can't and be hard. That is a maddening Cthulhu-esque prospect. <laughs> that's a comprehension that's like, oof. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you are also beset upon by apparitions. You become aware that you have died, and the ghosts of all your actions, of everything you have ever done in life, all your karma, comes at you all at once. It's like your life flashing before your eyes, but far more unpleasant. Where everything what? you've ever felt guilty about come screaming at you about what a horrible person you are. There's good karma though, right? Yeah, there is good karma. But it's the bad karma you gotta watch out for. I mean, yeah. Yeah. So they only show you the bad things, not the good things? Well, you see all of it, but the bad oh. karma comes and starts trying, like, the bad karma comes and starts trying to drag you down. It's like depression. Oh. It's, you know, it tries to cloud your whole judgment. Oh, yeah, tell me about you it. You are a bad person. <laughs> you are a bad person. You don't deserve this. Just yeah, over and over again. And every little thing you've ever felt bad about in your entire life just runs at you. It's very overwhelming. And, Tell me uh, about it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And uh, this confuses the soul and can cause it to be drawn into an unfavorable or undeserved reincarnation. The Bardo Thedol is read to the dead to sort of calm them down, let them know it's okay, that they're safe, that being dead means nothing can hurt you. 
and everything's going to be all right. <laughs> and it lets them sort of see the true path that's been laid before them. Hopefully, to liberation. But, you know, not always. Not everyone's going to make it. It's kind of uh, a nice, yeah. like, fail-safe, you know. Uh, yeah. Grow... yeah, it's a... <laughs> see, growing up Catholic, I always... I was uh -oh. banked on the eleventh hour uh, confessions, and we're back talking about the different aspects of the soul. Yet again, technical difficulties. I think the ghost of Wentz is pissed at us. Yeah, he's, he's clearly haunting us. <laughs> yeah, well, well, yeah, some, something's gotten into the power cables again. Uh. Oh uh, yeah, so like moment of death, deceases unaware, deceased, yes. the set upon apparitions, the book, the yeah, recite, the recitations. Yeah, the, the, yeah, the, the book, you know, the book is meant to ease it, um, uh, ease the transition, you know, prevent an unfavorable reincarnation, get you to you know liberation, and it's based on what is a very, I think, a very reasonable and very interesting premise, and it's the idea that even the most perfect person out there is still human. They will have moments of weakness. They will have doubts. They will have fears. They will make mistakes. The most perfect human being will still accrue negative karma. And being weighed down by that might prevent someone from achieving, you know, spiritual unity and liberation. So, you know, the book is, you know, trying to mitigate the effects of our mistakes on our souls. And that's that's actually a very nice thing. That's you know that's that's sort of a that's a very that's very much a gentler, more human aspect um, of Buddhism and of religion in general. That you know it's okay to be wrong. No, no, no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Listen, listen, Justin. I know you. I know you wanted to do the eleventh hour stuff. It's like remember, according according to the devil and Christian religion. One sinner, one thousand. You're still going here. Gotta collect them all <laughs> if you're gonna go. That's why yeah. I shall repent <laughs> on my no deathbed. <laughs> yeah. yeah, all that stuff. Yeah, um, yeah. And so with uh, with you know Tibetan Buddhism, uh, the deceased still understands words and prayers spoken on its behalf. It can still hear you when you pray over it. And uh, these prayers can increase your chances of attaining enlightenment. So it's very important uh, in Tibetan Buddhism, in, in Tantric Buddhism, to get to the dead person as soon as possible and begin the reading. Because the sooner, oh. you, start, the sooner you start, the better chance they have. Yeah, I, I was just thinking about, like, you know, people who end up going off to war and you know, being slain on the battlefield. How do I wonder how they would how they would have like, you know I I believe it's the acceptance that you can't save everybody. Yeah, like that's what I was thinking. Cause uh because uh yeah. like I remember specifically uh during like times of famine or plague that because that, um, traditionally uh in Christ in older Christianity ground had to be consecrated to bury the dead but sometimes the dead was just like the burials were just happening so fast that you would have a process of bury them bury them first sanctify the ground later yeah 
That's how you get zombies, everybody. Oh, no. Um, <laughs> the dead are buried in unconsecrated grounds, and their souls are coming back for vengeance, for they wander amongst us. Ah, yeah, that's kind of how early, early zombies, like Revenants. Yep. Yeah, there you go. There's the, there's the origins. <laughs> Undead returning. Uh, yes, and so the recitation of the, uh, you know, of the Bard of the Dole would continue throughout the whole 49-day period. Man is just reading this, uh, reading these prayers over and over again over the dead person for 49 days. That's a long time. Yeah. And uh, the person uh, reciting these prayers, you know, of course, must be performed by a lama or a spiritual teacher, which meant you had to go and book somebody for, you know, a month and a half <laughs> just to, you know, just to make sure, just to make sure the, the soul got to the other side. Just be like, excuse me, uh, I would like to book an appointment. Uh, Grandpa is on death's door right now. And it's like, mm, do you think you can make it another, like another few months? I'm pretty booked. At, at least yeah. a week and a half. This last one's going to take me just a little while longer. Can Grandpa hold on or can you guys yeah. just make something happen? I do. I, I do sincerely hope, given just the ratio of, you know, people to, you know, actually well-trained spiritual guides that there is some sort of like group therapy version of this where you've got like five people lined up and are just praying over them all in turn oh i'm sure they have like sh they have like figured out a way to like streamline like this kind of process because like because just one one priest or lava for like one person is yeah. a lot i feel like it's kind of like where they have like they might have like all the village like probably like for whatever 49 period they have like a bunch of the dead all together they just walk in the yeah. morgue open up all the drawers and just start reciting i mean i get because are they buried at this point um i do not i do not know i do not uh didn't get if they perform the, burials at all well i didn't really get a lot of the burial practices unfortunately because um, I I would feel like if the body can still feel like they believe like the body can still still feel things, I feel like they would shy away from cremation. Yeah, it's uh well it, yeah well they're definitely not cremating you. You can still hear. Yeah, yeah, that's why like, I was like I, I I believe it is linked to your physical form having access to the senses. Yeah, that's why I was like I, it doesn't sound like they would want to do cremation. So I'm like. Do they have they they might have so they might have done something you know, like some like some sort of preservation technique to like yeah. if they didn't bury them you know what yeah. I mean or or you know you can pray over the grave because it is um it it is you know you know it's understood that they can you know he you know sense what is being said on their behalf so there is a degree of you know extrasensory perception going on where it's you know. Where it's, you know, the physical ears may not necessarily, you know, have to be within earshot so long as you're doing it in their, you know, general vicinity and directing it specifically towards them. That's, that's interesting. So I guess the argument that we're having here is, is there an AOE on these books? Oh, an AOE a spell effect. Oh. Listen, listen, uh, Justin, you've played too much D and D. Um, stop trying to cast Spirit Guardians. 
To those uh, listening at home that may not be familiar, AoE is area of effect. Basically, how far a spell can impact. And, you know, we're talking about if one person can I, read for multiple bodies, it's... I think it's... Listen, if, if you want to do D&D &D terms, I think it's more like the message spell. <laughs> Where you just, you know, I don't you know, it's like, ah, I wouldn't normally be able to hear that. Wow, we're we're all kind. Yeah. We're everybody all, had all, we all we're all over this place. We've committed so much sacrilege. Everybody yeah. had to get their little if bit of sacrilege. You know, if you're Buddhist and you know about this, let us know in the comments. Yeah, please. please I, I'm actually wrong. very interested in what like, yeah. like yeah. like I'm very much interested in understanding about, like the burial practices if yeah. that's just, how it worked. Just remember, be polite. Yeah, this is something for everyone to see. But I think that's a good point for us to wrap up this uh, very interesting but technologically scuffed episode. <laughs> if you guys enjoyed watching, please leave a like down below. Let us know if there's a topic you'd like us to see. And let us know what other things you would want to hear on the podcast. And we'll see you in the next episode.